And our passage this morning is taken from 1 Kings chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. We'll read the first 13 verses. That should give us a good picture of what's happening in the book at this point. We've been moving through our series on redemptive history, the story of the gospel, the story of salvation, as it unfolds for us throughout the events of Scripture. Last week we covered the monarchy, and this morning we get to listen in and witness the division of the monarchy. The kingdom is split in two in a series of strange events. Young Christians, young theologians, last week we heard about an argument between a king and a queen... And this week we're going to hear about a different king who has trouble at home. What trouble is in this king's home? See if you can answer that. This doesn't sound like good news, but trust me, it is. This is the gospel of Jesus for our troubled hearts. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. The God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However... I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Pray with me. And our only hope, O Lord, in all of this is that you have chosen us in mercy and grace and kindness. Our only hope is that we have not chosen you, but you have claimed us and turned our hearts to long for you, and still our hearts run away, that you're faithful to call and pull them back through Jesus the Savior. You never forsake your covenant, you never forsake your grace, you never forsake your acts of redemption for the people whom you have chosen, undeserving as we are. 
And so we pray that you'd make our hearts more grateful and dependent and reliant, not upon ourselves, but seeing our weaknesses allow us to be more humble and dependent and reliant upon you. For all this, we'll give you thanks if you'll do it. And we ask it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? This passage is an argument for why you should believe the Bible. If you've never believed it, you should start. If you do believe it, you can commit your heart and your mind to it all over again. This is a saucy bit of scripture. It is not propaganda. In other words, if we were going to write up our heroes and heroines of the faith, and if we were going to make them look good, if we were going to manufacture sainthood, we wouldn't write it like this. You should believe the Bible with all of its outlandish, otherworldly claims because it's earthy. It's honest about people. And here we have Solomon as Hugh Hefner in his smarmy smoking jacket and his pajamas. He's turned the kingdom of Israel into a party at the Playboy Mansion. Now listen, I get it. I know what lurks in the hearts of men and sometimes women too. Those urges are there dwelling in our hearts whether we ever act on them or not. They're still a reality. The gracious desires, the good godly desires given to us can be so easily turned to dark and distorted things. But I mean, good night, who's got time for this? I have shades of Solomon alive in me, just like everybody else. But this is a time management problem. You sort of have the embarrassing sense that when Solomon composed, let's just call it what it is, the erotic love poetry of the Bible. Song of Solomon, right in the middle of the canon, right in the middle of the scriptures. He must have had to have whispered a thousand different times into a thousand nameless ears in the dark, in a thousand tossed beds. Oh, baby, I wrote it for you. This is an exaggerated situation. What I mean by that is it's historical. It happened. But it's not normative. Most of us won't live this way. We don't have the circumstances or the means for it. But this passage is important. It's meant to show us how far the heart will go if it's allowed. Solomon as the king has the world at his fingertips. If David built a dynasty on war, then Solomon built a dynasty playing Wall Street. He never raised a sword, but he was a stone-cold killer on the trading floor. He, He was a venture capitalist who never lost. He was Midas. Everything he touched turned to gold. Playing the part of the young, eligible billionaire, he takes not one trophy wife, but a thousand 
to sow. He's a collector, you might say. And you know how it is with collectors. They don't settle for the common, the run of the mill, the ordinary, the easily obtained. They go for what's hard to lay your hands on. So verse 1 says that King Solomon loved many foreign women. And the first of his wives was the daughter of Pharaoh. Wow. What a reversal. What an insult. To smooth over the 400 years that Israel spent as Egypt's slaves. By the Israelite king now marrying a daughter of Pharaoh. But it was flattering. You have to understand that. At the same time, it was incredibly flattering to have Egypt, once the superpower of the world, recognize the rise to prominence and power of the kingdom of Israel. And he does it by giving his daughter away at the wedding to be married to the Jewish king. And at the reception, the two kings stand up in front of all their guests and they toast one another. Let's let bygones be bygones, one says with a swig. And the other follows with, it's all spilled milk under the bridge or something like that. But it isn't. Broken slavery and exodus being deposited in the promised land by the loving intervention of God. That was the identity of the people. God had saved them. And this marriage softened the history and the theology of it. Made it seem quaint, but unnecessary. There were other weddings too, to Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite girls... The Sidonian pinups and Hittite beauty queens. And there were girls from other people groups the Israelites were forbidden to marry. At one point, there were so many weddings for Solomon that eventually the mention of the latest royal knot to be tied didn't even make the gossip pages in the Jerusalem Sun-Times. But in modern history, the world record for polygamous marriages is held by a man named Giovanni Vigliato from Syracuse, Sicily, who was arrested in 1981 in Panama City, Florida, not before he had spent 41 years as a serial marrier, not before he had achieved a career spanning 27 different states, and 14 different countries. Once, he married four women on the same cruise. You'd think the captain would have caught on about, I don't know, say the third set of nuptials. And the Sicilian is a chump compared to Solomon. Vigliato is an amateur, hands down. Solomon doesn't even bother to hide his wives from each other. Why would he do it? Why would he marry so many women? Well, some of the marriages were certainly meant to cement diplomatic alliances. Over the 40 years of his reign, there was peace throughout the kingdom. You can have peace by might or by savvy. David achieved peace with a strong infantry, but Solomon worked peace by keeping Las Vegas wedding chapels running a brisk business. 
But don't make the mistake at the same time of thinking that all of his marriages were coldly political. You heard the text when we read it. Solomon loved many foreign women. And in verse 3, his heart clung to them. But the second reason for a harem of wives is to add to the splendor of the king. You felt it when we read the inventory, when, when we went through the numbers of it. Solomon isn't one of us. He's not one of the people. He's above the people. He's in a league of his own. And it comes at a stiff price. It's all listed out in the prophecy in verses 9 through 13. Since you've not kept my covenant, I will tear the kingdom from you. Listen to the violence of the verb. I'll give it to your servant, not even to your son. Someone outside your family will have the kingdom. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days. But I'll tear it from the hand of your son. And even with with that warning, Solomon doesn't turn his heart. Even with that warning, there's no change in Solomon. He's like Louis XV who said, Après moi le déluge. After me comes the flood. After me there's devastation and destruction. But I don't care, I'll be gone. Let someone else clean it up. Let someone else live through it. And true to the prophecy, Solomon isn't even cold in the grave when the kingdom splits in two. Israel, the kingdom to the north, had taken 11 of the 12 Jewish tribes to form a new kingdom. And Judah, the southern kingdom, has its one namesake tribe. Circumstantially, the reason for the split was Solomon taxed the people heavily. Someone had to pay for his indulgent lifestyle. Cash for kept wives doesn't grow on olive trees. And he press-ganged the men of Israel into forced labor lines. It took construction crews seven years of working around the clock to build the temple of God. And then Solomon's palace, his large palace for his nation of wives, took another 13 years of construction. And Solomon's successor, his son Rehoboam, continued in his father's kingly practices and policies. Rehoboam's famous quote is, My father stung you with whips. My father disciplined you with whips. I'll sting you with scorpions. You've not yet begun to be taxed. And so 11 of the tribes, not willing to live under such a heavy hand, broke off and went north and founded their own kingdom. But the theological reason for the split, the theological reason for the broken kingdom, is Solomon worshipped his wives' gods. All of the kings, foreign wives, brought with them a carnival sideshow of deities. His wives had his heart, the passage tells us, and so did their gods. In verse 4, his wives turned Solomon's heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. He left the God he grew up with. He left the God who made Solomon his son from before his birth. 
That's the Jewish prohibition against intermarriage. It's not racism. It's not about pure bloodlines. It's doctrinal. It's about a pure worship. Because this God is just that big and that satisfying. This God is that perfect, that whole, that loving. If you have this God, you don't need any other gods. Solomon built Israel's God. A magnificent temple, three stories high, covered in hammered gold. I have architect friends throughout the congregation, and we talk architecture. They send me pictures of buildings, and we talk about traveling the world to go visit some of them, to stand in these structures and to try to soak in the meaning that's translated through space. And the temple was like that. The the temple was meant to be all the mysteries of God's goodness and love through His covenant communicated in a floor plan. But Solomon didn't just stop there. He built all these little pagan temples and shrines in every other vacant corner of the kingdom he could find. Initially, he built Yahweh's temple out of fervor and devotion and belief and worship. But in his later paganism, he he probably silently reasoned he could use it as leverage. God can't complain that I have other gods. I built him a temple after all, didn't I? Why can't he just... Take his house and leave me alone. But God can't be bought. He doesn't want to pay out. And he's not interested in a settlement. He wants all of the person. He he wants the whole heart of a person. He cares more about showing his grandeur and his power and his tenderness and his subtlety and his beauty in the heart than he cares about showing any of that in a temple. I don't know if you've put this all together yet, but that's why there isn't a temple anymore. He doesn't need one. He's got you. The place where God has always intended his rule to be set up and shown. It's right smack dab in the middle of your heart. His kingdom rule is to break your heart with its sin. To turn your heart against the sin it manufactures for itself. His kingdom rule is to heal your heart with His grace. To fill your heart with cravings and appetites for His righteousness. To make your heart spill over with His love. The kingdom has always been an internal kingdom showing itself externally, not an external kingdom trying to claw its way in. The kingdom is, with all of his heart, God wants all of yours. But Solomon carved his heart up. He he doled it out in shares, a piece to the goddess Ashtoreth, A piece reserved and served up to the god Milcom. Another share for Moloch. A part for Chemosh. And those are only the ones named. There were certainly others. Can you imagine? Can you feel the insult of it? Solomon saying to the God of the universe. The God who had made these people his. By the covenant and by salvation. I'm sorry you're going to have to wait in line. I'm off to worship other gods today. 
God's who didn't make us and didn't save us. To say to the God who appeared to him twice, who, who spoke to him words of grace and words of warning for departing his grace. I, I hate to interrupt you. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to go listen to other gods who have never spoken to me a word between them. But they have my ear. And if the king allows his heart to be pulled away, then the hearts of the people will follow. God broke the kingdom because Solomon broke God's heart. And the fractured kingdom was a very visceral demonstration that God will not encourage and he will not enable and he will not protect our polygamous trysts with other gods and the idols that we manufacture and the foreign kingdoms that we give ourselves over to. He won't help us carve up our hearts and give to him just a pitiable little piece of it. If you really want to see God's heart for your heart, it's all played out in Solomon's most famous judicial case. Over the years, Solomon built a reputation for being the wisest man around, though you wouldn't know it from his family life and his romantic leanings. Still, he was good with a riddle, nimble with a brain teaser, and the Queen of Sheba came to visit him in chapter 10 to see if the great Solomon could live up to his billing. And she asked him the hardest questions she could puzzle out. And he answered them all without breaking a sweat. And at the end of it, the text says, the Queen of Sheba went back to her room to lie down and rest because there was no breath left in her. His wisdom knocked the wind out of her. But on one occasion... Two women from his own kingdom came for a ruling. They were fighting over a baby. Each of them claimed to be the mother. Solomon said the solution's simple. We'll cut the little guy in half and you each get a piece. And the first plaintiff said, that's fine by me. The second plaintiff fell to her knees in the court. She heard the royal guard pulling swords from their sheaths. And she sobbed and said, I'd rather give him up altogether. And Solomon knew who the mother was instantly. Not the woman willing to have the child sliced up, of course. So do you get it? Do you see? That's not just some bizarre story from Solomon's reign. That's your story. That's what the living God does with you. You're the infant. You're the one in dispute. And all your gods, small g, all your idols, all the kingdoms you give yourself over to, the kingdoms of power and self-glory, the kingdoms of cheap comforts and thrills, the kingdoms of, of fantasy and someday, the, the kingdoms of belonging and fitting in, but not being loved. Whatever kingdoms you're captive to, they're all too happy to have your heart divided up into shares among them. They'd be pleased to death to have you pulled into confused little scraps. And God the Father... God the Father 
in eternal wisdom and compassion throws himself in the way with his holy sob and says, no, this one is not divided. This one stays whole and complete. It's in the last word of the section that we read as our passage this morning. The last verb of the whole section, chosen. He's chosen you, though you'd never choose him. And in that, he shows that your heart is meant to be his. And to put an end to the claim of all those who would keep you divided forever, your God settles it with a cross. He gives Jesus to be the fractured son, drawn and quartered on a cross, pulled apart for every wrong altar you've ever set up. For every affection you've ever wrongly spent. For all the hopes you didn't ask and cling to God to fill. For the harem or the stable of wrong loves you've collected for yourself and convinced yourself they'll keep you. But here's the trick of it. As Jesus is pulled apart on the cross... Soldiers huddle underneath him and they throw dice to divide his clothing among them. His heart remained undivided. Ah, he suffered the consequence, but not the condition. His heart was never divided, it was only ever wholly and completely and entirely given over to God the Father in love. And because of it, all the greedy claimants have to walk away from the cross empty-handed. They have no hold on him because he never gave his heart over to them. Not in the slightest fragment. And if you belong to him, they have no right to you either. And then Jesus walks out of a tomb to show us the heart he's restoring in us. To show us the undivided heart he's giving back to us. We go from fractured to being made one piece again. And your heart looks just like the tomb, standing wide open so no foul or frightening thing can ever hide itself away in there without your help, your alliance, your allowance. And that's the comparison made between David and Solomon in verse 4. David's heart described as wholly given to the Lord his God. But that's a strange profile. Can that really be true if David abused his royal power and, and stole another man's wife, a faithful soldier in his army no less? And then he tried to cover up the scandal, and when that didn't work, he had the man murdered, and he married the woman he just widowed. Somehow that doesn't sound like the kingdom of God ruling in the heart, does it? Did we miss something? What's the difference between David and Solomon in their hearts? This. David repented. David turned away from his sin. God builds his kingdom in the heart with repentance. Our sin is always the same. It's us living in the wrong kingdom and trying to make it work. 
It's us living in the wrong kingdom. Sometimes it's the kingdom that we've built. Sometimes it's someone else's kingdom. It doesn't matter. It's not God's rule in the heart. We've handed the scepter over to an imposter and we're trying to make it work. Living in the wrong kingdom and trying to legitimize it. But repentance is swapping out kingdoms. It's a willingness to be pulled from the wrong kingdom daily and hourly. An unwillingness to be fooled by the wrong kingdom anymore. Repentance is a longing to have more of God's rule in our hearts. To think and to feel and to speak and to move after Him. To desire what He desires through Jesus. But here's what the kingdom in the heart feels like. Here's what it is to experience it. It always feels inconvenient. Always. Listen, there's nothing terribly convenient about salvation. Nothing terribly convenient about an incarnation and a crucifixion and a resurrection. Nothing at all convenient about death-inclined hearts regenerated. Never is the kingdom convenient. It's always cumbersome. And it's deliberate. You have to think about its movements. You have to move forcibly past what's clearly wrong. And sometimes you have to push your way through what's murky and miry just because it isn't clearly right. It feels like work, but it's healthy and clean, like breaking sweat. It's stubborn. It doesn't bend. It doesn't bargain. It doesn't negotiate. It feels like a fight but it feels like a winning fight. And I've never known anyone sorry for the kingdom of Jesus in the heart. Here's what it really feels like. It brings no regrets. That's what you should crave. It brings no regrets. But to live in the wrong kingdom, the kingdom of our sin, scandalous sin or domesticated sin, the ones that look acceptable can be mildly approvable. It doesn't matter what kind of sin. To live in the wrong kingdom is easy. It's always easy. It's not at all hard to find. The wrong kingdoms jump up and down in front of us and wave their arms. Always available, easily accessible, filled with candied promises. But it's always tiring and it's always exhausting. There's the irony. As easy as it is, it'll wear you out. Your sin will drive you and grind you to nothing. It's like having 700 wives and their endless line of altars all demanding attention all the time. That's what sin is like. It feels like endless theatrics and never growth. It feels like Not being solid, not being whole because you're not, your heart's been divvied up. It feels like confusion. And if that's what you feel like, you're living in the wrong kingdom. Doesn't matter if you're a skeptic or a Christian. Either way, you could be living in the wrong kingdom. But Jesus is calling you to his. And the good news is, with all of his heart, Jesus wants all of yours and he's willing to fight for. He's willing to break your wrong kingdoms and to show you how much of your heart he has. 
He'll call on you to help. He'll enlist you to break up your wrong kingdoms with repentance. When I was in college, I visited Australia for the better part of the summer. And while I was there, the Australian parliament minted new money. Some of the bills had become worn out, torn to shreds with time and use. And so the old bills were pulled out of circulation and new bills were issued. But the new bills didn't have the pictures of national heroes on them. They had the portrait of the queen in the center of the bill. Australians don't like the queen. You know this, right? Australians have no love for the crown of England. Technically, they're a part of the United Kingdom. But they've never forgotten that their origins as a country came in the form of a prison colony. They're the outcasts of the realm. Why should we submit to an authority who has no love for us is how the national conscience goes. So people had protest parties. They gathered in the streets. They blocked off cul-de-sacs. And they burned the queen's picture out of the center of the new bills. And that's what our hearts do. We try and we try and we try to erase the rule of Jesus from our hearts until we realize that our hearts are made for him. Until we realize like David that he fills our hearts best. And then we want his image to be pressed and stamped and carved and cut more deeply and indelibly and unmistakably in our hearts. And we settle for no other kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you in your mercy, in your grace, in your steadfast love for breaking up our wrong kingdoms. Thank you, O Lord, that you will not enable all of our polygamous trysts with other gods, the idols we fashion, the kingdoms we set up for ourselves. But instead, you'll have the whole heart. And it's your grace when you give us no rest and deep discontentment, deep dissatisfaction, when we try to live in wrong kingdoms and call them right, it's your grace to allow us to wear ourselves out with our sin. All we ask is that the wisdom of the gospel fall on us like the dawning sun. Open our eyes. Unplug our ears. Allow us to see and to hear the good news. That Jesus loves us fully and best and his kingdom is never a disappointment. And with his rule in our hearts, our hearts are healed and made whole. Forgive us for the ways we've fragmented ourselves and now, O oh Lord, heal us. Heal us with your gospel in word and in bread and in wine. And with the hugs and kisses of fellowship and gospel encouragement, 
passed around through the body. And all of it, Lord Jesus, break our wrong kingdoms. Give to us more of your kingdom of redemption and grace and truth.